Hello everyone listening at home, welcome to the 7 Point Highlander cast. We are the official podcast of the 7 Point Highlander format. I am your first host, Saab, and with me is our regular, Vance. Hey. And we also have a special guest today, Wan Chin. Hello. So we are going to just give a little primer before we start this show, which is going to be about aggro. Uh, none other than Wan Chin of Wan Chin Red or Wan Chin Burn is going to be here talking with us about aggro a little bit. Uh, Wan Chin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, yeah, so uh, I've, I'm fairly new to um, Highlander. I, I've pretty much only been playing maybe for the last you know, three, four years. Basically, I never I never started in Highlander because Isaac is so keen on it. Uh, he basically um, built me up a deck, which is once in red, um, to try and convince me to start playing Highlander. Nice. Uh, yeah, that's basically how I got into Highlander. Uh, but like, I've been playing, obviously, I've been playing Magic in other formats, but like I, I just never thought of actually playing Highlander until Isaac actually built me a deck. And the deck is sweet. We're probably going to get a chance to talk about your deck uh, at the end, uh, near the end of the show, and you can tell us about what its current incarnation is. But sure. for those who haven't met it before, uh, the One Chin Burn list has been doing very well. Um, when, when, when would it have been? 2015? To the, some, something around that kind of era when it started? So it started about 2016-ish, around there. That that was probably about the first version of the list that um, I still have. Basically, when it started, um, there were no points on things like Snap Custom Mage or Treasure Cruise. So, yeah, Mm. so because it's not just, it's not mono-red, it's um, red-blue. So, yeah, all these blue card draws had no points. So um, back in those days, it was just playing, yeah, the cruises, the the dig through times um and then after obviously over time as things got pointed the list changed over time so you know had moxes then boxes got pointed and then it went back and forth for a bit until it's come to the current iteration that we currently have at the moment that is a trip down memory lane and what other point should we what other better point should we talk about for what's the point but the one that you probably had to struggle with when you had to choose between those powerful draw cards and a powerful mana ramp. The what's the point for today is going to be a very aggro specific card. We're going to talk about Mox Ruby. So Mox Ruby is three points. And Vance, can you tell us a little bit about the power of Mox Ruby? It's such a fun card to play. So Mox Ruby is uh, one of the original uh, power nine. Um, it's a zero mana artifact, which uh, just taps for one red mana. Now, if you haven't been playing for long, you might think, well, that's basically just a mountain, right? And it is. But it's a mountain that you can play as well as a land on your first turn. So it leads to some very fast starts and tends to have a kind of a snowballing effect on games if you draw it on the first turn or two. Um, So instead of on your first turn, you just play like Savannah, Lone Lion. You've got a Kurt Ape as well. Um, So instead of attacking for two on the second turn, you're attacking for four and you reduce the clock very, very quickly. Um, It also means on your second turn, you've got three mana. So you might play another creature and burn one of their blockers out of the way or something. So it does exactly the sort of thing that aggressive decks want, which is it trades resources for time. Having stared down someone opening on uh, Mox Ruby, where, you, where they kind of go mountain, you go, yeah, sure, no problem. Mox Ruby, uh, oh no. And then suddenly, you know, Harsh Mentor or something nasty comes out and, and that was their turn one. And you go to your turn, you go, oh, I have to crack this fetch land. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like gaining most of an additional turn a lot of the time. Mm. It's not as good because you don't get an extra attack step, but... You do gain most of an additional turn, uh, and Moxes in general, we're just talking about Mox Ruby specifically, Moxes in general can 
if they're pointed lowly, tend to fuel degenerate board states um, or degenerate combos if they're very uh, low points. Because obviously combo decks love having the fast mana even more than aggro decks do. So that's pretty topical for one chin as well, where uh, you were talking earlier about how the blue cards weren't really pointed at the time and you could easily just throw a treasure cruise in, throw a snapcaster into essentially what's a burn deck. Uh, mm. When you had to make that choice between playing ruby and playing uh, blue spells, uh, I-, I assume that was a pretty hard choice. Yeah, uh, back the first iteration we had Ancestral Recall as the point, like the main mm. one that took mm. up most of the points. And then <laughs> we get to, yeah, and we got to play for free um, all the uh, the treasure cruises and the snapcaster mages. Nice. Um, basically, once once they got all pointed, that wasn't really feasible anymore. And we changed to a more um, aggressive build with the Moxes. So we, we put in uh, the Mox Ruby and the Mox Sapphire. Um, which basically what what he ended up doing was, as Vance was saying, it ramped it up so that basically we could pay two drops on turn one or three drops on turn turn one basically if you had two moxes in her in hand. Um, and so, but with the deck as well, it's um, it plays a lot of moons, so it has like you know t- you know running out of blood moon early mm. is, is game winning. Um, as well, because my my deck isn't as aggro as some of the more a- a- aggro builds like Zoo, for instance, out there. Um, it, it's it's a little bit slower, um, so sometimes just um, running out a three drop early, um, getting a um, sulfuric vortex or anything like like that at, at three is um, r- running out and turn two is actually very good as well. So you'll find with my deck at the with with the two moxes. It, um, it's running out of three drop early is good. Um, it's less more about you know running out of multiples of one drops and more about mm. r- running out the you know idol on on turn two the harsh mentor as you said Sarf. So mm. I think that's that's the power of um, where it comes into my deck more so than running out multiple one drops that on turn one. I love it. Yeah, yeah, and I, mean, I think the other thing that we should briefly discuss is uh, why moxes are specifically three points. So they were, I mean, there were three on the initial seven-point list. There were various other points on the previous Canberra and Melbourne lists, but um, I'm, I'm pretty sure there were three uh, as soon as the combined list was formed. Uh, and they stayed there for a really long time, until about uh, 2016, I think, maybe 2015. But, um, just after 2016. <laughs> yeah, I just remember, after 2016. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we decided, um, it was actually suggested by, uh, Patty, uh, that we should see how the format breaks down if they're at two. Um, and having them at two had some positive effects, definitely, but it also, it pushed a number of decks that were quite happy to play, uh, like elves, which really wanted to play multiple moxes for extra mana acceleration and, and push those sorts of decks beyond what was sort of uh, safe. Um, and they do have a, a detrimental effect on the price of the format if they're too important. Like if the default points for every deck is you start with a mox, then that increases the sort of minimum price point for decks from, I don't know, what it, 500 to 1,000 it might be at the moment. Mm. Uh, and you add, depending on where you're getting your mox from, Two or three or four thousand mm. um, dollars. So, whilst cost isn't an overriding factor, uh, 
it does contribute to a number of other things. Like the format was also I, there. There was some. I mean, look, I enjoyed it. I was playing Zoo. There was some good. <laughs> yeah. There were some good aspects about having moxes at that point. But um, yeah, they, they were pushing the power level of the format up a bit more than we liked, and that combined with the cost is part of why we put them back to three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nothing to rule out for the future. But right now, it's just uh, uh, Agro's doing quite well, in, and this is probably why. This is probably why we um, are doing our episode today on aggro because people are actually sleeving up aggro again and, and the recent change with strip mine to one has uh, amongst other things has really changed per- people's perception on aggro and, and they've started embracing it and it's been doing well so uh before we delve into aggro in highlander specifically i've just got a definition here to read out and this is straight from the the archetypes for magic the gathering uh online and i've got the definition for aggro so aggro short for aggressive decks attempt to reduce their opponent's life from 20 to zero as quickly as possible rather than emphasize a long-term game plan aggro decks focus on converting their cards into damage they prefer to engage in a race for tempo rather than a card advantage based attrition war aggro generally relies upon creatures as its accumulative source of damage aggro decks can quickly overwhelm unprepared opponents and proceed to eke out the last bit of damage they need to end the game Aggro decks are, uh, also generally have access to disruptive elements, which can inhibit the opponent's attempts to respond. All right, that is our definition of aggro. So before I, I jump straight into uh, some examples of cards, uh, what do you guys think about that definition? How does that apply to Highlander? Does it fit? Uh, broadly, yeah. As definitions go, it's not too bad. It uses tempo in a way that is different to the way... Some people use it. It's a little bit different to when we talked about tempo previously. You are essentially trying to just manoeuvre the game into a position where your opponent's life total is going down as fast as possible and they have to make bad choices Mm. uh, to try and survive. And you're trying to capitalise on their unpreparedness. I like it. And we were were literally just talking about how Moxon basically do exactly this. You know, they're allowing you to reduce their life total quicker because you've got more pressure. And they're allowing you to um, basically dominate that early game and, and gain some level of tempo over the opponent. So iconic cards, Moxon, for aggro. Uh, let's go straight into uh, four categories that I have for uh, Highlander cards. What I've done is I've trawled through our uh, forums for all of our aggro decks and we're looking at basically, th- I've, I've uh, grouped them into four possible categories for aggro. There's the uh, ag- aggressive creatures, there's uh, reach to finish the game off, there is uh, the specific note on lands and how lands behave in aggro, and then the disruptive element of aggro. So uh, let's just start with the aggro creatures. Uh, one thing that seems to be a consistent trend for aggro in Highlander is the one drops generally have to have two power. Uh, so for green, you've got Sky Shroud Elite, Nine and Renegade. For white, you've got Soldier of the Pantheon and Kytheon. For red, they've got a wider variety of Goblin Guide, Stromkirk Noble, which becomes a a two-power creature, Uh, Zergo, Bell, Striker or Ringer, Um, Monastery Swift Spear, which on average is roughly two-power, Multicolor, some of Vance's favourites. We've got All-Stars like Wild Nacaddle, Loam Lion, Curd Ape, Sunblade Elf, then Rakdos Cackler, which is a hybrid card, and Dried Militant, another hybrid card, as well as Figure of Destiny, with a little bit of investment, becomes uh, two power for a one drop. Uh, Black has Carnophage, 
Diagraphical, Sarcomancy, Vampire Lacerator, and a very special category of recursive one drops in the form of Bloodsoak Champion, Dread Wanderer, and Grave Crawler. So this is just a wide variety of one drops, all of which have essentially two power or more. And uh, the this is a, a straightforward, right? We want we want two power because we want to apply pressure. Uh, but this rule gets broken sometimes. Sometimes you can have a one drop that doesn't have two power. So, for example, Grim Lavamancer and Mother of Runes are two that I've just pulled out as an example. Uh, I'd turn it over to you two as the uh, the primary aggro players. What is the line where you'd basically accept a one drop that has less than two power? What what does a one drop need to make the cut for you if it's not applying pressure that way? So uh, I, I think like um, right now in my deck, I have a Grim Lavamancer. So that's recurring damage, I think, basically, with a Lava Mancer out. Um, it's 1-1, one, one, but basically it shocks you as long as, as long as you have, like, you know, cards in your graveyard and um, the mana to actually tap it. So that, that to me, meant that it was worth the spot because basically, you know, I can do the recurring 2 damage and it's flexible that I can hit the face or a creature uh, with that uh, mm-hmm. one drop. So that for me was um, why I put, um, you know, Ravamancer into my, my deck at the moment. Um, you know, obviously we talked about Swiss Spear is a one drop, but it basically is often more a two drop or more. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, exactly. Delver Street Secrets, I've got that in my deck. One, I mean, it's a one one, um, mm. but it, it, has the, it has the ability to flip into a three two flyer. So I, I think he needs to have a more of upside either in the flexibility of what it can do in its um, activate ability, for instance, or it, you know, transforms or does something to make it bigger in some way or form. Yeah, very true. I, I like how we basically just skipped blue. I didn't even put blue in the list. And, and there are things like Phantasmal Bear, and these are nice little, you know, one, one uh, two power one drops uh, with some kind of downside. Blue doesn't get the best of them. It's got Delver of Secrets, and then there's a little bit of diminishing returns there. Uh, uh, two, two points on the question you asked: for a one drop to be good enough, it has that only has one, is a one one only has one power. It either has to be getting bigger somehow, like Kurt Ape or Delver, or be ridiculous. Um, so. The drop-off is pretty sharp on activated abilities after Grim Lavamancer and Mother of Runes. I can't actually think of a third uh, creature that I would usually play in an aggressive deck in Highlander. And I take um, it that Mother of just... Runes there makes makes the cut because it permits reach in a way? You know, uh, Mother of or... Runes, I think I've actually cut. Um, or it might be in my sideboard at the moment. I can't actually remember. But Mother of Runes makes the cut because it makes it really hard for your opponent to recover. So... Mm. You don't often use it to give a creature protection just to push damage through. You just sit it there so that their removal... They've got to have two removal spells to kill one of your creatures, um, Mm. which is nearly always going to be Mother of Runes first, so it makes their other removal easier. But you're just playing that kind of... You're playing that tempo game where you're saying, all right, this card's not going to deal you a lot of damage, but it costs them a bunch of time and effort to get rid of, Mm -hmm. which is time and effort they're not expending getting rid of your other creatures. Uh, I think it's also worth mentioning that uh, that there's... Heaps of other two-power one-drops that you can play depending on what colours you're in and what your purpose is. So if you're in something like Warriors because you want to get the Najila payoff or you know the various other tribal payoffs you can get from Warriors, there's a bunch of uh, Savannah Lions plus in white um, <laughs> yeah, you might want to consider. So 
I mean, Highland is at a point where you could pretty much, if you were willing to play a five-color deck, you could probably play sort of 30 to 42 power one-drops, and it would probably not be a great deck, but, like, the option exists if you're willing to go into all of your, you know, your Jackal Pups and Gazban Ogres and whatever, um, mm. many of which are terrible these days <laughs> in Highland, although they used to get play. Yeah, there's definitely diminishing returns there when you when you fill it with uh, just a little bit too many two power one drops, and you start to really scrape the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> we in the early days of Highlander, I remember. I don't think I was playing Zoo. I can't remember, uh, but I remember seeing people play Zoo. And yeah, your best one drop by far was Savannah Lions because it was a two one and it didn't have a drawback. Because yeah, yeah. you, you your other two power creatures were like you know Gazban Ogre. Uh, and Wild Dogs, which your opponent will steal from you half the time. Uh, Jackal Pup, which kind of hates you. Uh, Matenda Lion, which you had to sideboard out against all the blue players. Like, we have a wealth of riches these days in comparison. So true. Yeah, the, the fact that a lot of these white two-power uh, one-drops don't make the cut sometimes. You know, you've got... We, we have we have a couple that weren't mentioned, like Isamaru and so on, and, and there are these nice little legendary tribal aspects. But, yeah, you can see that white has so many, we just can't list them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Isamaru uh, is getting played at the moment in, um, uh, I think it's Gene Holland's deck, mm. the where he's playing Mox Amber. Um, yeah, it's like a Mardu Legends which is, kind of uh, yeah, sub-theme it's a, aggro It's deck. a tiny bit more mid-range than aggro, but it's still fairly aggressive. Mm. So that, um, that leads us up the curve. So if we're going up the curve, uh, what I've noticed when trawling through all the deck lists and compiling this, that if the card is more expensive than a one drop, so it's usually a two drop or a three drop, and the number of three drops you can actually fit in an aggro deck is relatively limited. Uh, if, if it is bigger than a one drop, it has to have some other benefit. So I categorize them in uh, three different categories. So the first category is... It's got to be big or it's got to be fast. So some kind of way to put a large amount of damage, more damage than should be expected from a two drop. So let's say uh, Tarmogoyf is a great example. Spike Jester as well. Flint Hoof Boar and Voltaic Brawler. So they're our kind of big or fast sources of damage. Uh, the other option is that it provides some kind of recursive damage. So Harsh Mentor, which we mentioned before as well, but Eidolon of the Great Revel, Goblin Rebel Master, Bloodgast, Earthshaker Kenra, which comes back later on in the game, and Burning Tree Shaman. And I know that Vance has had uh, quite a bit of success with Burning Tree Shaman in Zoo, uh, denying things like Splinter Twin activations and the like, which is pretty sweet. Uh, and then the last of this, this uh, three different categories for better than uh, the average is it provides some kind of utility, and that's got to be worth it. So the the front runner there is Dark Confidant because of the card advantage, uh, but also Abbot of Carol keeps his play because of card advantage in that one too, and a little bit of prowess is extra damage. So uh, my question for you guys is, uh, what not one drop, so a two or three drop usually, uh, is your favourite to play, and what makes it good enough? Uh, for me, uh, I found... Yeah, anything like Eidolon is very good mm. um, of the Great Rebel. Uh, Rebel Master, um, when you run it out, obviously, with <laughs> Mox Ruby as well, um, it, it starts to, you know, it takes over the board. And, and also the new card, um, Legion War Boss, which has a similar effect. I, I find that, and obviously uh, Magus of the Moon <laughs> um, is, is something that, you know, um, yeah, it's much more um, of an upside than any other one one drop you could be playing. Mm. So um, I, I think those 
in terms of creatures, anything that's more expensive than one drop, yeah, those, those are the ones that I, I probably find um, that I, I enjoy seeing. <laughs> Nice. Um, the only the only other one is Jace Prodigy. Oh, um, it's yeah, interesting. good choice. It's it's interesting. That one is um well well it's not doing damage. It's looting basically. <laughs> but like basically it could mean an early flip of a planeswalker. So uh, that that's actually quite a good guard sometimes depending on what's happened in the previous turns. So yeah, I, those, I really like Jace Prince Prodigy as as that kind of. Uh, bizarre role where it seems to be fitting in control decks, seems to be fitting in mid-range decks and in aggro decks as well because that that looting is is not irrelevant. And then yeah. you know, occasionally flashing back price of progress, yeah, why not? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, that's that, that's what I found. It, it's been very good. And sometimes you play it and the next turn you're able to flip a Planeswalker and kill them by, you know, minusing the yeah, Planeswalker ability, just whatever's in your graveyard that you've already, you know, got them down to a fairly low life on. Mm. Yeah, I mean, even if it's just one of those sort of bolt jace bolt turns, mm. like that's pretty good. Um, so, Burning Tree Shaman is uh, a card that is maybe not really should be in the deck, but I really enjoy playing. It has a lot of utility damage. Like, it's really good against. I mean, as you said, things like Splinter Twin, or you know, watching your your Time Vault opponent desperately trying to find a way to get rid of it while they're taking two or three damage a turn, activating, <laughs> and it just sort of coincidentally punishes a whole lot of things. And you've already uh, mentioned a lot of the questions. Earthshaker Kenra is one that I didn't expect to be... Like, I expected it to be okay, and mm. I tried it out, and it's really good. Because um, it often means that you'll cast it on turn two or three when your opponent thinks that they can, you know, trade off one of your creatures or something, and instead they take six and don't get to block at all, which is, is really good. And on the rare occasion you get it back from the graveyard... Um, Having it back as a 4-4 with haste is also obviously pretty good. I just want to talk for a minute about where I think the line is for quality of two drops that are just beaters. And I think that line is somewhere slightly past Watchwolf. So I think Watchwolf is not good enough. Um, if you're in just green-white, it might be. But if you've got any other options, Watchwolf is not quite good enough for what I'd want to be for a beater. Because... Just a vanilla 3-3 gets pretty easily outclassed by the Delve Creatures, for instance. On turn 2 or 3, you play your 3-3, your, your opponent untaps and delves away a bunch of cards and plays Gurmag Angler, and it's just sort of left there looking like an idiot. Whereas something like Voltaic Brawler, which is slightly smaller after the first two attacks, but is a 4-3 and gets trampled for two attacks, um, which is really important. Um, which just lets you push damage through, uh, even lets you push damage through uh, True Name occasionally. You need to just sacrifice your creature to do them three damage. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a really good line to draw where you can... Those are two very comparable cards, aren't they? Where you kind of have a consistent 3-3 three, three or an occasionally 3-4, occasionally 3... Uh, occasionally 4-3, occasionally 3-2, but that trample is dramatically relevant for aggro. And also... You're hoping that the game is over after your sort of fourth or fifth turn, so it probably only has one turn where it's got three power if everything's going to plan. Mm, yeah, that's a fair point. So we've, we've talked a little bit about reach there in, in a way. So this is the second category that I've compiled, which is basically some kind of reach to finish the game. And the these come in two uh, categories for me. One of them is a really, really straightforward and, you know, there's there's not much tact to it. It's burn spells. You've got the plain old bolts like, you know, chain lightning, lightning helix and, and bolt itself. You've got the bad bolts, rift bolt, incinerate, lightning strike, searing spear. You've got bolts with upside. 
So Firebolt, which has a flashback. Searing Blaze, Searing Spear, which kill creatures and go to the face. Incendiary Flow and Pillar of Flame, which exile Kitchen Finks and Voice of Resurgence and co. And then you've got the straight to the face burn, like Price of Progress, Skullcrack and Ataka's Command. So uh, what I want to turn over to you guys as the aggro players is, uh, can you tell us about the importance of playing what we would call bad burn? So people look at these lists and they go, Searing Spear, Lightning Strike, why are you playing these, you know, just bad, bad uh, burn spells? Is it about critical mass or is it about the instant speed? What, What is it that makes them playable? Critical mass. For me, I think you need to have enough burn spells that like we've all seen these games of aggro versus sort of control or mid range where the aggro deck comes blistering out of the gates, gets the opponent to like four, mm. and then there's a wall of idiots, you know, three threes and four fours in the way, and you can't quite eke through the damage. And you've got to either find a way to go wide enough around them, which is often quite hard because um, they'll be removing your creatures or they'll just have better creatures than yours or more of them or whatever. Um, or you've got to have them under enough threat that they can't... You don't want to have your control opponent have too many turns where they're like, sweet, this turn I can just sort of ignore you and you know cast Fact or Fiction to draw some cards mm-hmm. and then cast this other thing to draw some cards. They've got to feel like at all times they could die at any moment if they're on you know three life. They need to not feel like it's safe to crack a fetch land that might help them because you might just have two bur- bad burn spells in your hand, but two bad burn spells still deal them six damage. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think Vaz is right. There, there, is, there is some sort of, you need to have a, a certain number of those kind of burn spells in, in the deck to um, have that sense of yeah, um, fear, I guess, in your opponent. Uh, um, if you don't, if you only uh, stick to the, you know, the most efficient one mana bolts, for instance, um, you probably don't have quite enough. You know, I have a couple of like four damage ones, so we haven't talked about fire blast or the um, uh, exquisite firecraft. Um, so you know, I even, I'm, not, I'm not even playing the like as many of the, um, you know, the lightning strikes. Even I'm playing three mana, <laughs> four damage like a burn spell. So, go so big or go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know, I even have a couple of those, but just mainly because it's like I, you know, I can deal you four. So, so it's it, it's having that that kind of um that kind of reach um is actually um, very important. Mm, yeah, so and, and just on whether being sorcery speed matters or not. I mean, obviously, you would rather all your spells were instants, um, mm. but uh, so you do have to find a balance between being able to. Force your opponent to act at the end of their turn, which is obviously good because it gives you opportunities to sneak through other things, um, but also just playing better spells. So I would rather... I mean, if you look at an extreme example of, say, Shock versus some... Pillar of Flame. Well, Shock versus well shock versus Chain Lightning, right? Yep. You'd always play Chain Lightning because two damage just doesn't kill a huge amount of things. Three damage is a lot more you know card efficient so if you're casting three damage spells you only need seven of them to kill your opponent if they're two damage spells you need ten and there's also a lot of creatures that two damage spells just don't kill so you've got to find the balance that's right for you um i mean in my current list i've got rift bolt which is a sorcery uh, and is almost always completely telegraphed to your opponent (laughs) Uh, incendiary flow because the exile clause is good enough that I think it's better than the second Searing Spear. And I think the... Oh, and Chain Lightning, obviously. And I think the rest of them are instants. But 
you know, playing some of the big sorcery ones uh, can be right as well. Like you've got to find, you've got to do testing with your deck and find out where your where your curve is happy and so on and so on. Where your weaknesses lie and, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, we've got a more eclectic category of reach. So the first one was pretty straightforward, right? It's just uh, it deals damage and very, very slight upsides. Uh, this second category I like to call recurring reach. So we've got recurring reach in the form of Deathrite Shaman, Smuggler's Copter, Cursed Scroll, Sulfuric Vortex, Eidolon of the Great Revel, which we mentioned before, Pyrostatic Pillar, Chandra Torch of Defiance, and Rancor. So all of these provide some kind of, uh, you know, damage in the late game or damage where you're essentially drawing live. So, you know, Smuggler's Copter is, is damage where you go, well, if I top deck a creature that doesn't have haste, I essentially get to do three damage to my opponent. Uh, the evasion's very, very relevant there. Same with Cursed Scroll. You know, you're top deck mode, you're dealing damage. Um, and then Sulfuric Vortex, every uh, control player's nightmare. Uh, but Rancor has seen a lot of play in uh, Zoo, and, and Vance can probably tell us about that. What are both of your favourite cards that provide some kind of every turn level of reach? Uh, yeah, I, I think my, one of my favourites is um, Sulfuric Vortex. Mm. We've already talked about that. Um, I, I find often you have to determine whether you can like outrace them sometimes, depending on who you're playing. Um, about whether you play your Vortex or not because, you know, some decks might be able to outrace you depending mm. on what you're playing. So, you know, uh, you know, even some of the tempo decks, they might be able to outrace depending on how, how, how the board is. So you have to kind of decide when you put down a Vortex whether that's the yeah. right play or not. Um, but, like, often it will win you the game because of um, recurring damage, obviously. And any of the Planeswalkers. Um, I've got Cloth of the Hammer in oh, there as cloth. well. Oh, Nice. So Copper Hammer is really good. At any mountain you go, it's just a four-four that gets in, and you know the, you know it's it's fairly fast to get to the ultimate as well. In which case you just win um, uh, eventually. <laughs> yes. I mean, all your mountains do damage, so it's it's it's, it's pretty a, hard to lose from there. Yeah, it's pretty much yeah. So um, both the chant, both the um, red planeswalkers, the Koth and the Chandra, I found very good. Um, so I find often either one of them will like they need to deal with it. Otherwise, you know, you'll win the game one way or another. Mm. Um, so that's that's what I've um, found in terms of what I've been working with in my deck. I don't know what Vance will say as well. Or his- uh, I don't know. I don't know why you would ask me to choose between my children. Um, <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll talk briefly about a couple of them that I. So Rancor, I think, is probably the best of them. I mean, other than Grim Life of Manchester, obviously, but that goes without saying. Um, because Rancor is essentially, it's kind of like adding a two-power creature with haste to the board. And that, that's actually an important thing about all of this reach, is it all has haste, basically. It's like, um, it's only one shot, but, you know, you're just playing all of these mini ball lightnings. Um, but yeah, Rancor is... Uh, Adds two power to a creature, which will let your little creatures tumble with, uh, tangle with most things. And it gives them trample, which can be very important, as we've discussed uh, before, against things like True Name Nemesis and um, even just against them having, you know, random blockers that they're trying to prevent damage to their face with. Yeah. If if they're blocking with their elf out of desperation because they're trying to preserve their life total, that's not very good if you've got a Rancor. Um, two of them which I don't see people playing enough... Uh, in my opinion, uh, Smuggler's Copter and Curse Scroll, which you both mentioned. Mm. Um, 
Curse Scroll. So Curse Scroll is a one mana artifact. You tap it and uh, you pay three and tap it and you name a card and then your opponent picks a random card from your hand. Uh, and if it's the name card, you deal two damage to target creature or player. Um, and the reason it's good is you don't have cards in hand. Yeah. Um, or you have exactly one card in your hand, sorry, uh, when when you activate it. So it's just three mana deal two, which doesn't feel great, but I've won uh, a frankly unreasonable amount number of games against control opponents by just casting this on turn one or two, and it sits there for the whole game. Mm. Um, and eventually you get to a point where you've got to kill them somehow and you just you know deal four to six damage with this thing. It's not as good uh, against the Grixis decks these days because they've got all that uh, incidental artifact hate. Um, but the other one is Smuggler's Costa, which, Copter, which I think is uh, incredible. Um, yeah, card's great. So, as you said, it, it essentially gives all your future creatures haste uh, and flying. It lets you loot away your excess lands because in a deck like Zoo, and I assume One Chin Red is much the same, uh, most aggro decks are much the same, once you're at your sort of fourth or maybe fifth land at the outside every land you draw for the rest of the game is a dead draw um mm. you just don't have any realistic use for your sixth or seventh or eighth land uh so having ways to turn them into other cards or turn them into damage sources is really good the other form of reach that i've been playing in zoo recently which you don't activate a lot but you do sometimes uh is um Hazaret. ah nice Hazaret is the only four drop I'm playing at the moment in Zoo because it's, I mean, it's an indestructible giant monstrosity for starters. Um, <laughs> but it also does let you turn your floods into not floods. You just pitch excess lands at their face. Sometimes you pitch creatures you've drawn on the turn where you're going to kill them. He's like, yep, take two. Hazaret can attack now. Smash you. Yeah, thing is sweet. Well, so you've, we've just talked about land quite a bit there. So this is the third category that I was compiling, and this is just the concept of land in aggro decks. And the first um, advantage of playing aggro is that you can have a really low land count because uh, the last thing you want to do is flood. And when you do flood or, or for the few slots that you have, uh, you make those lands matter. So the first group of lands that I have are the reach lands. So... Uh, these are lands that offer you the ability to kind of close out the game or, you know, give you the ability to draw into things that close out the game. And those are Barbarian Ring, Mutavolt, and Mishra's Factory. And uh, Gitu Encampment, because its activation is two, once you start to get, you know, Celestial Colonnade level of activations for their creature lands, they're not very playable in aggro. And the last one in this category is Horizon Canopy. Uh, the other group of lands in aggro are the disruptive lands, and these are largely just two lands. It's Wasteland and Strip Mine. Uh, so what are your favourite lands to run in aggro decks? Um, so my my deck has recently changed with the um, depointing um, of um, one point off to Strip Mine to one. So I've actually added the Strip Mine into my deck now. Mm. Um where we didn't play that before, so my deck um, used to have back to basics um, as the other point, uh, plus the two moxes. But um, conveniently, one was like down to zero and one was down to one. So um, nice. so I added the strip mine in. I didn't know what to think of it at first. Um, I, to be honest, uh, I looked at my list and I go, I, I've got an extra point to play with. What can I do? 
just put a land in, replace one land with another land. (laughs) (laughs) And that's basically what happened. Um, So I didn't think too much about it because I didn't want to think whether like putting a Snapcaster Mage back in my deck was relevant or not. Um, Mm. So I just go, I'll just replace the land with another land. Um, So what happened was that we did that, or I did that. Um, Isaac played the deck in, I think, a week or so later in a um, sanctioned event in Melbourne. And he said that that was one of the... um, best parts of the deck like that strip mine um won him a lot of games in in that uh 20 something person tournament nice when he played i think so uh so yeah it it actually provides a lot of value in the aggro deck i think it's um just the disruption element i think is the main main part being able to disrupt um someone who you know destroy their land they don't get to you know um they stumble Either they don't draw another land to play what you know the second like the two drop or whatever it is, mm. and um, it gives you the time to basically take control and just like um you know you know win the game from there. So I think that's that's a huge part, and I think um that is probably my favorite land at the moment. Um, nice. You know I've. I, I think that I mean it's probably overkill, but the fact that like I have like blood moons and strip mine and back to basics in my deck just basically it's very hard on that kind of disruption and mm. um, hate. So um, being able to because the uh, Grixis control, for instance, is probably the um, key, the premier control deck at the moment, and they play blood moon in the board, for instance. Mm. Um, being able to take out one of their you know, um, basics um, could severely affect a lot of things that they need to play. So because a lot of decks know that there's, um, the, you know, the moons and back-to-basics out there, um, they'll play around it. And having, having like, Wasteland Strip Mine available now at such a low point count um, will allow you to play um, your game um, without, you know, ba- basically them being, you know, able to play around what you have. So true. Yeah. Yeah, strip strip mine. Um, if you've got, if you're going to cast a blood moon or you've got a back to basics, it often lets you take out. Like they'll often they'll fetch for basics, but they'll often only fetch for like maybe one or maybe two of each color, depending on their hand. Um, so if you can take out their only blue, like their only island, um, it severely hurts them uh, in those circumstances. Uh, so my my favorite land uh, in zoo, well, my favorite non basic land in zoo is probably. Um, Barbarian Ring. Uh, it's just that extra two points of damage. It's that extra reach we were talking about before. It is really efficient. And the cost is relatively low, although the cost isn't zero. Um, so one thing you do have to be careful about in your three-plus color aggro decks, probably more than in mid-range and control decks, is you don't have a lot of spots for lands that only produce one color. Mm. Um, because... In a mid-range or a control deck where you're playing, I don't know, 22 or 23 or 24 lands, um, you've only got, let's say, 15 slots which are taken up by your dual lands and so on, 15 or 16 slots, 17 maybe, which leaves you a bunch of slots for basics if you want them, or you can play uh, utility lands. Whereas in uh, a deck like Zoo, you're playing probably more like 20 lands. Uh, So once you've added in your fetches and your uh, jewels, you don't have a lot of slots. And also, because of the nature of playing a heap of one-drops and two-drops often, which are multicolored two-drops, your mana requirements for the cards in your hand are often quite stringent, um, and you have to be able to meet them early in the game. So Gideon Camp and I would actually recommend people 
don't mostly sleeve up on their aggro decks because you can't afford lands that come into play tapped. And Mutavolt and Mistress Factory similarly can be quite good, but you've got to make sure that your mana base can genuinely support it. So um, in Zoo, I'm playing, I think, three sources that only produce one color and two of those are mockers. It might be four, I can't remember. But yeah. that's sort of your your upper bound for how many you can afford to play. Um, and I'm probably being slightly greedy. <laughs> nice. So uh, this brings us to the last category for aggro so this is disruption in aggro so we have uh, disruption in the form of uh, creatures so you can have a creature you just staple some disruption onto it and they still apply pressure and sometimes the disruption is relevant or it's not so examples include kazali pride mage tin street hooligan both of those two deal with you know artifacts for example and then scavenging ooze dealing with the graveyard and Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, dealing with pesky control opponents. Um, the other group of disruption is the group that tends to be in the sideboard or tends to be very, very light on in the main deck because this group doesn't necessarily do anything on its own. So, for example, Blood Moon, the Magus can be in the main, but Blood Moon is an enchantment. Uh, Duress Inquisition Thoughtseize, known as Dits. And then the much debated mental misstep, you know, should aggro be playing mental misstep? Uh, my question is, how much is too much uh, focus on disruption in aggro? Where do you put those cards? And how do you kind of balance your uh, uh, meaningfully interacting with their life total and interacting with, say, spells or artifacts and, and creatures? What are some of your favourites too? So... Oh, okay, fine. Uh, I was going to say a braid, I think, is another one that's important that, mm-hmm. that wasn't on that list, which um, is a really easy slot in for aggro decks because you're quite happy to kill creatures and when you <clears throat> you don't always want to kill an artifact, but when you do, you want to kill it pretty badly. Yeah, that's fair. I, and it's often not, not highly considered by aggro players because they think, well, it doesn't go to the face, so I can't play it. But sometimes the, the artifact is just so important to get rid of, right? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> obviously you want as much of your burn to go to the face as you can. Like, being able to point cards at your opponent's face and kill them, as we were talking about in the reef section, is really good. Um, but you also want to not die. Um, <laughs> you can't afford to expand a huge number of slots on this, uh, which is why cards like Scavenging Ooze and um, Corsali Pride Mage are so good. Because they're cards that are probably good enough to play even if they didn't have their disrupt. Well, no, Ooze isn't. Pride Mage is good enough to play even if it didn't have its disruptive element. Um, and Ooze's disrupting element is incredibly disrupting. Mm. Yeah, even if even if Scavenging Ooze, say, targeted a creature in the graveyard but didn't actually exile it, you know, for some whatever reason that might be, and um, yeah, you it's couldn't target the same one multiple times or whatever it is, so it just basically becomes bigger according to the creatures in the graveyard, uh, it's still perfectly fine as a beta. But when you actually you're actually exiling cards, not just creatures, but any card, and just disrupting those combo and control opponents, it's, it's pretty damn good. Um, I'd like to just say, um, you know, we haven't really mentioned it, but Wheel of Fortune <laughs> is disruption. So, um, oh, yeah. so it has two things. So, um, I, you know, I played against a combo opponent and had to wheel them twice. To kind of get rid of the cards in their hands, and you just yeah, basically it yeah because of you know flashback or um whatever. But like yeah, it's 
it's really it's actually very very good um outside of you drawing a whole lot of cards as well so he has the um destroying their hand as well as um you know refilling yours mm. so uh, that that i find it's actually one you know since it's been I, I i wish to actually see it more i think it should actually see more because it does basically disrupt you know um a combo player that spent a couple of turns basically sculpting their hand suddenly mm. just gets it wrecked by um you know having to discard everything so uh, you know i find that that has been actually very good um in terms of that and obviously because my deck is based around um, moons um so you know the blood moons and the back to basics have always been very good um so but that that's the build of my deck um yeah. it's not necessary for a whole lot of other decks but the, that's how uh, my deck is actually um positioned so my disruptive elements are basically based around the moons um you know some some discard with the wheel and um you know we've I've, I've even got to smash the smithereens because you know i need, also need to deal with um yeah. you know the random artifacts but it also deals three damage at the same time as well so yeah exactly so, yeah, where you want to be yeah yeah, there's there's a couple of cards that have flexible where like um you know, also with fiery confluence that can also deal with like you know whatever is the issue whether it's an artifact or you know you creatures or you need to just deal them six so yeah yeah so true um I think another one that I will be trying in Zoo next time I play it is um Cindervines yeah, I've been playing that yeah. it's quite good cards for the new set Cindervines which um. He's going to deal them some damage as it goes and then we'll destroy a problem artifact or enchantment for you later. Um, costs virtual three to do it, uh, which is the same as Pride Mage and it's probably not quite as good as Pride Mage, but it's definitely worth a run and I'd definitely play it in the sideboard. So, yeah, I guess in general, the sorts of things you want are cards that deal with things that are a problem for you otherwise and are likely to stop you. So there are a lot of artifacts and enchantments out there that are going to um, make your aggressive plans not work very well um you don't see a lot of them these days but you know things like the moat and the abyss really put a damper on your style cards that are flexible like a braid are really good so that you can afford to play the main because if they don't have it well it doesn't matter because in an aggro deck sort of as we talked about with lands um unlike a control deck you don't have many options for what to do when you flood on cards that aren't great in this matchup so a control deck can afford to have you know, three or four or five silver bullets in their deck because they might have tutors or they might just have a bunch of card draw so they're more likely to have them in hand. And because they've got a bunch of card draw, when you draw them and they're not useful, you don't care that much. Mm. Um, whereas in an aggro deck, every card matters. Yeah. So cards true. like, uh, as I mentioned before, a braid are really good because it's almost never dead, um, except against de dedicated combo decks. And even in them, sometimes you'll, you know, You'll snipe an egg or something. <laughs> snipe an egg, a, a phrase you'll never hear outside of Highlander, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we, we talked about all of these groups of cards and what we're going to do is we're going to smash all those cards together and give you the highlights of some of the good decks in the format. Uh, I'm just going to read out a little blurb for uh, three of these five decks and then the last two, I'm going to turn over to Vance and Wan Chin to tell us about what their current builds are. Now, the decks in, in the aggro decks in the format have been on the rise, but please don't be uh, sad if we don't mention your uh, fringy brew of aggro. Uh, keep keep brewing it, keep getting it there, and then eventually it'll become an established deck, and it'll get mentioned here. Uh, so. 
It's same as with all those lists of cards. They're not exhaustive lists. We will definitely miss a selection of cards, but it's just to give you an idea of what the cards are. So this is to give you an idea of what the decks are. Uh, so we have three decks that I'm going to talk about. The first one is the the top tier, the premier aggro deck of the format. Arguably the deck that people say is, you know, the, the iconic aggro deck of, of Highlander that is... Um, uh, performing with good results and largely got benefited from the recent Rakdos uh, printings. It is Red Black Aggro, also known as Neiman Burn. So Neiman Burn uh, is focusing on these small black creatures that put pressure on, but they're also recursive, so they end up coming back after being blocked when you go wide, or when you clamp them to draw cards, or when you sacrifice them to Reckless Abandon to deal damage to the face. Uh, the burn is a selection there to finish off their life total, so there's also some extra reach in the form of Necropotence as well, drawing up a bunch of burn and unloading it on your opponent. Uh, the sideboard contains the maximum number of interaction for red-black, which is Duress, Inquisition, Thoughtseize, aka Dits, and the t uh, two moon effects. Uh, when we move into the established decks, not quite tier one, but they have been performing to some degree quite well and are moving up there in the world, we have green-white hate bears. So on average, green-white hate bears is uh, focusing on much smaller threats than other aggro decks, but when you look at them, you know, uh, pound for pound, they're smaller, but their strength comes from the higher level of disruption that's built into those pieces of pressure. So examples include Avon Mind Sensor, Leonin Arbiter, and Judges Familiar. All of these are smaller than their, you know, one, two, and three drop counterparts, but they have disruption. Uh, and since there's no burn in green-white, the curve ends up being a little bit higher with things like Thrun at the top, uh, Knight of Autumn, Spectral Procession, and Elspeth Knight Arant. They also use Haymakers like Ravages of War and Armageddon to lock their opponent out once you've actually committed to the board. Uh, the third deck that I'll mention is Mono Red Burn. And this is probably the purest or closest version of a Highlander deck that is represented in Legacy, Modern, basically every format that Burn is playable. And uh, they include all these different variants of red deck wins cards that have been played in standard burn cards that have been played in legacy and jam them into uh, a highlander version that includes uh, black lotus and mox ruby and these just let you power out explosive starts finish the game off early and then use Ma uh, magus of the wheel and wheel of fortune to have these late game refills that one chin mentioned before uh, Luke McLaughlin in Adelaide has been uh, fine-tuning the mono-red burn list, so if you want to know, uh, give him a shout-out on the Discord or on the Facebook, and he'll send you the latest list. And he's been testing pretty much every new card that comes out. He'll test it, and he'll say whether it's good or not. Things like Experimental Frenzy, Viachino Pyromancer, Goblin Chain Whirler, and all these other standard all-stars that make their way into the deck. Uh, there's two more decks to uh, mention. So we have... Uh, obviously Zoo, which Vance can talk to us about, and we have One Chin Burn. Now, uh, when we look at uh, lists that have changed, One Chin has talked about the changes, but what she will uh, tell us about is what what uh, she's currently uh, running right now, because the list is very different, isn't it? So what are you running at yeah. the moment? Yeah, so, so, what's, so back when the Moxes got back up to three points, um, we had a lot of options, um, whether we, you know, went back to the blue yeah, for the points, back to the blue draw spells, or trust kept with the Moxes. So what we've ended up with, um, because we tried, like, you know, yamming the Ancestral back in, um, 
tried it a few times, but I I actually just really like the um the mox build. Mm. Um, just like the the power that you have with having two moxes. Um, it, it's I think that's where it's best positioned at the moment, especially with, especially now with um strip mining going back to one points. So I think that's probably the best build. So after looking at okay, those are the points. I had to think about uh, what best like suits a build with two moxes and a strip mine, for instance. So so my 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 build is um it's it's not so much on big on the whole lot of small aggro creatures is rather more um intent on running out your more powerful three drops for instance um mm. so the moons the moons um you know having access to a back to basics um being able to put in eidolons and that that kind of and harsh mentor that kind of disruption or, or even just to power your, your pains walkers i think that's where the um the key around the deck is um based around um, and obviously being able to finish off with a whole uh, suite of burn spells, um, that that's where this this deck is um, positioned at. Um, I, I even got up a Bedlam Reveler as well. Oh, nice. Um, just, yes, just to that late game, sometimes you just need to refill your hand and it's often if you've been playing a lot of the um, instants and sorceries, it, it's really quite cheap so you can actually get, you know, play it for two <laughs> at times. So... <laughs> So um, that's that's where I deck is. So it's not it's not as fast as some of the other decks that might be out there in terms of um, you know a uh, high number of uh, small creatures that just kind of um, you know flood the board and basically you know aggro you out that way. Mm. Um, rather, it, it basically uses the power of the moxes to ramp into high powered um, you know three drops, two drops, um, and higher. Um, to basically, um, you know, burn you out through there. Um, the newer cards that we've added in recently are um, Experimental Frenzy and Risk Factor. Nice. Experimental so, Frenzy looks amazing when you're running Mox Sapphire, yeah. Mox Ruby, and Chrome Mox. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and and you've got Brainstorming in deck, and you've got Fetchlands. So I, I think, and the ability of, you know, Jace Vin's Podgy, you've got Dark Faden. There's the, the Frenzy is, it's, Outside of like, it's actually a very good card. So I, I think there should be more. If you're playing red, it's like you should think about um, whether you want a frenzy in because basically you will take control of the game mm. if um, you you have it out. Um, and and outside of just basically winning <laughs> with it, you have so much fun in Highlander um, when it's in play. You, you know, it's like like I said, it's like um, when when you hit a roadblock with frenzy, it's because you've got two lands that and but. We've um, in Highlander where we've, we've access to fetch lands. You can shuff away that land on the top of your deck, or if you um you know if you see the brainstorm and you've got some awesome cards that you want to play in, that are in your hand, you can kind of put them back on there. So it it provides a lot of options. And basically, once you know we were talking about reach before. Um, I think I didn't really mention it, but like experimental frenzy will give you that extra reach at the end mm. when you basically need to just like you know you. You string together like however many spells. Um, you're very restricted by your mana, and and by the by the end of that, you'll you'll prop you'll be winning the game. At the same time, have you know, having cards in your hand. So, so it's actually a really powerful card. Um, you know, it's obviously it's four mana, but um, in in this deck, um, it's totally worth the um, the investment in that. Um, risk factor. Um, the the four damage is a very relevant in an aggro deck. Yeah. Um, it's. Uh, you know, and then you can, basically you can cast it twice, um, and it, often it's like they often when they're low enough, they have to think, do I take this four? 
uh, or give them the cards where you could just put, draw a whole lot of burn spells and kill them anyway. So, yeah. so it's it's a very interesting kind of um, option that um, you know your opponent has to face. Uh, I haven't. Uh, I've seen some aggro decks with things like browbeat in it, but I think um, the respector is probably a better option at the moment. So. Yeah, browbeat seems seems kind of fringy, unplayable because of the fact that they can always choose, whereas Risk Factor, it's very, very hard to choose because it represents technically 8 damage, and it seems to be, on on average, deal 4 damage, draw 3 cards. That seems to be, you know, because they end up having to make a decision. They can't choose the same one twice. <laughs> it, just does, it usually doesn't really work out for them. If they go, I'll take 8 over the course of 2 turns, or I'll let you draw 6 cards. <laughs> So I've talked about Zoo a bit on the podcast before. Um, we've talked about it a bit this episode. We did record an episode which I uh, managed to fumble uh, and delete my side of so that uh, we'll have to record that again one day. But Zoo, your plan is fundamentally to play um, a lot of one-drops and bash your opponent upside the head with them. Um, so... Uh, I'm playing, I think it's something like 14 one-drops at the moment. Um, the deck has a very low curve. So, as I said before, the only four-drop in at the moment is Hazaret. Um, I've got, I think, three three-drops, uh, which might be one too many. Um, and, and it's mostly one-drops and burn spells. Um, well, burn spells and various other kinds of reach after that. So... Your plan is to just, like, your ideal game is uh, first turn, play a Wild Cattle and a Curd Ape off a Mox, and then next turn, cast Ataka's Command, which is a reach spell we didn't mention before, but which um, is really powerful. Like, it often does, well, it it almost always does five damage. Um, I've done seven damage or eight damage with it before if you've got a uh, Swift Spear out. Like, it's... It's one of the swingiest cards in the deck when it goes well. Um, so yeah, you just want to play out those things and have some kind of plan for the late game, whether that be uh, burn spells or the recursive kind of damage spells we were talking about before, or you having already won the game because your opponent's life total is zero or less. My, my build is currently uh, red, green, and white. I've played red, green, black before, which is potentially better in a metagame with a lot of Grixis, uh, because... Grixis has some difficulty with the recursive threats like Gravecrawler, um, whereas if your opponents are on control decks with white, the recursive threats aren't as good because most of the removal is just going to exile stuff anyway. Um, whereas uh, against those decks, you're slightly better off with the slightly buffer creatures like uh, Lone Lion that you get from being white and the slightly better disruption like uh, Quasali Pride Mage. Mm. Um, so it's... It's a deck that rewards practice quite a bit. Like, you've got to have a good idea of how many turns are left in the game if things go to plan and how many turns are left of the game if things start to go sideways. Um, it can be a little bit frustrating to play at times, which is why I've been uh, playing uh, Dinobots, because you do sometimes get matches where uh, your opponent just grinds out inevitability and you get to a point where you're like, well... You know, if I do top deck a burn spell, I win the game, but uh, I might not do that for six turns and they might have recovered. So that can be a bit frustrating. It's something to be aware of with a lot of aggro decks is you tend to have, I mean, 
you have less control because you're not the control player. You're the beatdown. Zul also tends to be pretty good against a lot of the other uh, small creature aggro decks because compared to something like Red Black, your creatures are better. Um, like Curt Apes and Lone Lions are better than whatever 2-2 zombies they're trying to smash at you. Your sideboard options are as good or better um, depending on what they're siding in because you've got a lot of the same sort of you can play a lot of the two and three drop life gain spells that that mid-range decks are going to play. Um, and they can be very good in aggro mirrors. Um, and against certain categories of control deck, you're uh, better than some of the other aggro decks because, again, um, your creatures are moderately harder to kill on average and you're certainly not slower. You lose you lose the option to play Blood Moons. Blood Moons aren't good against Zoo. Um Back to basics can be very good. Blood Moons aren't very good, though, because most of your spells are red anyway. Um, but you also can't really afford to play it. Um, like They're good enough that you would rather that it, it wasn't in play, but they're not good enough that I would recommend anyone sideboard them in. Nice. Well, that was a, a nice rundown about Zoo and also One Chin Burn. If you are thinking about sleeving up an aggro deck, please uh, just hit us up on, on Facebook or Twitter and you know just find out some information from us. We'll be able to give you any tips that you require. Otherwise, check out the Oz Eternal deck lists forum because you can have a look at what is trending at the top tier and the established and some things that are being developing as well in aggro. Uh, this brings us to the end of the episode today. So thank you very much for joining us on this journey through the aggro deep dive. And if you oh, want can I to just jump in with one thing, yes, sorry. Um, I just wanted to mention that uh, I don't know if you've seen the the light spoilers that have been coming out for War of the Spark recently, um, but that looks like it's going to be a fun set to review. And there's a bunch of because uh, it's got 36 planeswalkers in it, which is a yeah. lot. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> um, so we should have by the time this this episode airs, we'll probably be seeing. Uh, I don't spoilers. think so. We might start seeing some. Okay. But there's like six or seven. Uh, I think there's eight or nine that will be red or green or red green from you know based on what they've been previously. So I'm excited. Anyway. Yeah, that's a good. Point. On with the end of the episode. Yeah, maybe we'll see. <laughs> we'll see some nice aggro planeswalkers if they're if they're low mana cost for limited. We'll see. That'll yeah. be interesting. Um, so where was I? We were talking about Twitter. So basically all of our branding is really consistent. It's all at HighlanderCast. So if you want to follow us on Twitter, just go to at HighlanderCast. You can shoot us any questions and get some feedback about your deck or some deck uh, choices for aggro. And if you want to follow us individually, Vance is at Vance and Notions. Uh, Wanchin, do you have a Twitter handle? Yeah, it's at the L-E-E-W-C. Perfect. So you can uh, yeah. give us a shout out on either uh, Vance or One Chin's Twitters there, and we'll make sure they're in the show notes too. And if you prefer Facebook, then just jump on to facebook.com slash HighlanderCast. And then obviously, if you like what you hear, then come and join us on the Patreon. If you become a patron, the advantage of being a patron is that you get to sometimes see episodes or hear episodes early when we upload them early to the Patreon. Uh, or you can also get lots of uh, uh, little uh, input into the actual show by telling us the idea that you have for the next show, if you want to have a deep dive on a particular deck topic, or if you want to talk about a particular archetype, or if you just want to really talk about some sweet new cards or sweet decks that you've been playing, give us a shout out there on the Patreon, become a patron, and we'll be able to include you as our priority customers. Then um, the, uh, let's see, where are we? Um, we've covered everything. 
Look at that. <laughs> this is, this is what, what uh, Millie, Millie has passed on to us. She's, uh, she's very, very organized and, and we are not so much. <laughs> so that covers all of the topics of the, the outro. The last one that I will do is give a shout out to Adelaide Eternal Weekend, which is the very first weekend of April by the airing of this show. It'll basically be... I think not the weekend coming, but the weekend after. So you will have enough time to organize your carpool or uh, get some cheap flights and jump over to Adelaide. Uh, We've got a really, really uh, big showing for the uh, Adelaide Eternal Highlander Cup, which is April the 6th. Uh, the first prize is a Mox Emerald, which was generously sourced by Isaac Egan. And we also have a Highlander uh, Cup, the actual trophy as well, which will be for first prize. And then anything in excess, if we get a larger number of players than we are expecting, will go in the form of dual lands from second, third, fourth, and so on. So uh, come and join us there. It'll be great to catch up. That'll be our next major point of metagame data. And I'm sure we'll be enjoying uh, doing a little bit of a debrief and seeing how Agro performed at the Adelaide Eternal Weekend. Uh, so thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, this is Saab out. See you, everyone. Bye. And that's a wrap.